First reading is taken from the book of Exodus, chapter 19, verses 1 to 6 and 16 to 20. On the third new moon, after the Israelites had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that very day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They had journeyed from Rephidim, entered the wilderness of Sinai, and camped in the wilderness. Israel camped there in front of the mountain. Then Moses went up to God, the Lord called him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the Israelites, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession out of all the peoples. Indeed, the whole earth is mine, but you shall be for me a priestly kingdom and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the Israelites. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning as well as a thick cloud on the mountain and the blast of a trumpet so loud that all the people within the camp trembled. Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. They took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke went up like the smoke of a kiln, while the whole mountain shook violently. As the blast of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses would speak to God, and God would answer in thunder. When the Lord descended upon Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, the Lord summoned Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. Second readings take from the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 2. Verses 1 to 21, then 37 to 41. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place, and suddenly from heaven there came a sound like the rush of a violent wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Divided tongues, as of fire, appeared among them, and a tongue rested on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them ability. Now there were devout Jews from every nation under heaven living in Jerusalem. And at this sound the crowd gathered and was bewildered because each one heard them speaking in the native language of each. Amazed and astonished, they asked, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. In our own languages, we hear them speaking about God's deeds of power. All were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? 
But others sneered and said, ah, they're filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, raised his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and listen to what I say. Indeed, these are not drunk, as you suppose, for it's only nine o'clock in the morning. No, this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. In the last days it will be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even upon my slaves, both men and women, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy, and I will show portents in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood, fire, and smoky mist. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the Lord's great and glorious day. Then everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and to the other apostles, Brothers, what should we do? Peter said to them, Repent, and be baptised, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, so that your sins may be forgiven, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you, for your children, and for all who are far away, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to him. And he testified of many other arguments and exhorted them, saying, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. So those who welcomed his message were baptised. And that day, about 3,000 persons were added. Today is one of those days when I get to preach on one of our stained glass windows. Have you ever looked at them carefully? Up there? Up there? We used to have some postcards of them for sale in the foyer, but I guess they sold out. The four windows are of four New Testament preachers. And apart from anything else, they tell us a lot about what this building was built for. Imagine the old Victorian raised pulpit that used to be behind me, and if you struggle to imagine it, there is a photograph of it on our little history display in the foyer. An elevated preacher, standing six feet above contradiction, flanked on either side by great biblical New Testament preachers. Then imagine the building full to overflowing. Apparently, according to the 1851 census, the evening service was attended by 1,711 people. The pews were different in those days. Uh, these pews are 20th century, and there was an upper layer of gallery, and they hadn't heard of fire regulations. But just imagine, the only place where a preacher can stand and be both seen and heard is just there. All the sight lines point to there. And if you fancy an experiment, come back when the building's empty and wander around that upper platform whilst speaking and you'll find that there's a perfect acoustic sweet spot 
front dead centre, where you could whisper and be heard throughout the auditorium. This building is built as a preaching box. It is designed for the proclamation of the word of God. And when you're up there, look over your shoulders. Behind you, you would find John the Baptist preaching, and Jesus preaching, and, and Paul preaching. And then just over my shoulder here, we have Peter preaching on the day of Pentecost. The quote beneath him is from our reading for this morning, from Acts chapter 2, verse 14. Peter, standing up with the eleven, lifted up his voice. The crowd he spoke to on that day was far in excess of anything this building could ever hold. We're told that at the end of the sermon, 3,000 people welcomed his message and were baptised, which would seem to imply a crowd of rather more than this. In the Bloomsbury window, I counted 20 people, so I can only assume the other several thousand are standing just slightly out of shot. The largest crowd I've ever spoken to is about 2,000, which was last autumn down at St George's Cathedral in Waterloo at a London Citizens event, which I was chairing where we had Sadiq Khan turn up and 2,000 people putting him on the spot about uh, whether he was delivering on his promises. It had the benefit of being inside with a good acoustic and a great PA system. And I do find myself wondering how people could project to crowds of several thousand in the way you described here and in other places, like, you know, the Sermon on the Mount. I mean, scenes from a certain Monty Python film occasionally run through my mind as the message is passed further back and gets uh, slightly misheard in the Chinese whispers as it goes back. But anyway, the Pentecost sermon was no ordinary sermon. I mean, apart from anything else, 3,000 people asked to be baptised at the end of it. You know, I'm expecting something similar here today. Uh, I do make a genuine offer, though. We are planning a baptism. And if you have not yet been baptised as a believer, and you would like to be, do come and talk to Dawn or talk to me, and we would be delighted to have that conversation with you. We don't get the baptistry out all that often, so we are going to be doing that and heating up the water. Uh, it usually gets heated. There's been one here where it was stone cold. But anyway... Um, there was something very strange going on in this sermon at Pentecost. The great crowd were not all Jerusalem Jews. They were from the furthest corners of the known world. They were diaspora Jews who had made their home in other countries, but who had returned to Jerusalem for the great feast of Pentecost. And they heard the disciples speaking clearly in their own native languages. Well done, Peter, on getting that list of different countries absolutely spot on. Much ink has been spilled over the years on whether this is a miracle of speaking or a miracle of hearing. If you have a background in the Pentecostal or charismatic traditions of Christianity you will probably have been told that the miracle at Pentecost is an extension of the phenomena spoken of elsewhere in the New Testament, often known as speaking in new kinds of tongues. Just to help us understand some of the 
background and context to interpreting this passage we have before us from Acts this morning, I think it's worth hearing some of these other biblical references to speaking in tongues. Uh, Mark 16. And these signs will accompany those who believe. By using my name, they will cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up snakes in their hands. And if they drink any deadly thing, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover. That's a passage from the kind of uh, slightly questioned additional end to Mark's gospel. But slightly earlier in Mark, in, sorry, in, into Acts now, uh, the circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astounded that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles, for they heard them speaking in tongues and extolling God. And in Acts 19, when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. And then a little cluster of readings from 1 Corinthians. Uh, to another, various kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. Do all speak in tongues? If I speak in the tongues of mortals and of angels, but do not have love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will come to an end. As for tongues, they will cease. Now, I would like all of you to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Tongues then are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. While prophecy is not for unbelievers, but for believers. If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you're out of your mind? But if all prophesy, an unbeliever or outsider who enters is reproved by all and called to account by all. So, my friends, be eager to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues. But all things should be done decently and in order. There we go. That's, that's the list of New Testament passages that are associated with this phenomenon known as speaking in tongues. And the question, I think, for us at Pentecost is whether what happens at Pentecost is this same thing as speaking in tongues or not. And I'm not sure it is exactly the same. Speaking in tongues seems to be primarily a devotional practice. Probably a bit similar to, I don't know, meditative chanting, which allows the person doing it to enter into an ecstatic spiritual state where they feel particularly close to God. Certainly my experience of this over the years has been that it has been, for me, a way of releasing my mind from the very word-bound thought patterns that often dominate me allowing me to speak with God spirit to spirit. In my youth, when I was hanging around more charismatic churches, people would play the game of trying to work out what earthly language you were miraculously speaking when you exercised the gift of speaking in tongues. We would ask ourselves, did that sound like Italian or Arabic or Hebrew? And there were various stories circulating of people suddenly and miraculously speaking a language they'd never learned. I'm afraid that my experience of speaking in tongues has led me to rather doubt these stories. They always seem to me to be a bit more like an urban legend. You know the kind of thing. It happens to a friend of a friend. I'm sure it must be true. My suspicion is that these kinds of stories, where people miraculously speak other languages arise from a conflation of the devotional practice of speaking in tongues, which Paul says is a sign for believers, with the events of Pentecost, which is clearly a sign for unbelievers. 
for my money, the miracle of Pentecost in the book of Acts is a miracle of hearing. The disciples may well have been engaging in the practice of speaking in tongues together as they were all gathered together in one place, ecstatically responding to the Spirit's presence with them. But the ability of people from all over the known world to hear them in their own languages doesn't mean that the believers were actually speaking all those different languages. I mean, apart from anything else, there would have been this huge logistical problem of making sure that the Parthians were close to the disciple who was miraculously speaking Parthian and that the Medes were all gathered around the Mede-speaking disciple and so on and so on. I think this is a miracle of hearing, a miracle of understanding, the Spirit opening people's minds and hearts to something new that was being brought into being. The new community that the Spirit was calling into being was a community where people were enabled to hear and to understand each other in new ways. I'm just going to pause for a moment and, and ask you to look at this rather beautiful picture of uh, Pentecost. A couple of uh, things I want to point. Firstly, you've got the Holy Spirit as a dove, which isn't referenced, of course, in Acts. That's coming from the Holy Spirit descending upon Jesus as a dove at his baptism. But then you've got the, the tongues of fire. Um, I don't think there's anywhere near enough people there. Uh, all the disciples were gathered together in one place, probably is about 120 people at this point. But I'm fascinated that we have got Mary in the center. We sometimes think the disciples at Pentecost who proclaimed the word were the 12 male disciples. I think this was the much bigger group who received the Holy Spirit, and it included the women. And I'm very glad that this picture and many others put Mary front and center as a symbol of the fact that the Spirit is not poured out only on the men. All barriers of division, symbolized by language or geography or gender, all these barriers are broken down. Peter, in his sermon on the book of Joel, which follows when he lifts up his voice and addresses the crowd, quotes Joel saying, God declares, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Whoever you are, the spirit is for you. This is the beginning of the mission, to take the good news of Jesus to the whole world. And the disciples will need to learn again and again as their story goes through the book of Acts that God is calling them to cross boundaries, boundaries of language and culture and religion and purity and class and gender and ethnicity and geography. The message of this Pentecostal miracle is that God will not be contained he will not be contained in our meetings, in our communities. He will not be constrained by our boundaries, by our norms of behaviour. God is bigger than any attempt we might make to contain or understand God. And the biggest hurdle that these newly baptised believers on the day of Pentecost, the biggest hurdle they were going to have to get to grips with pretty quickly was a question of ethics. The question of what behaviour is acceptable and what isn't. What do you do that puts you outside of the community of God's people, if anything? 
these 3,000 Pentecostal converts, whilst they came from all over the known world, were still Jews. They would all have accepted the laws of Moses as the basis for their behavior based on the Ten Commandments. That, after all, is why they were there in Jerusalem in the first place. They'd come to the capital city of their culture and their religion to celebrate the great Jewish feast of Pentecost. Perhaps more properly known in the Old Testament as the, the Festival of Weeks, and these days still celebrated within Judaism today as the Feast of Shavuot. The Festival of Weeks has its origins in the Old Testament as the festival of the grain harvest. It was when Jews would make an offering of the first fruits of the harvest to God as a symbol of the fact that the whole harvest would belong to God. You find it in Exodus and Deuteronomy. You shall observe the festival of weeks, the first fruits of the wheat harvest. Then you shall keep the festival of weeks for the Lord your God, contributing a free will offering in proportion to the blessing you've received from the Lord your God. And this symbolism of first fruits and the great harvest adds a layer of understanding to what's going on in the Pentecost story in Acts. The subtext invitation here, when we realize the importance of this happening at Pentecost, at the festival of weeks, is to understand the 3,000 converts in Jerusalem as just the first fruits of a much greater harvest of salvation that would encompass all the nations of the earth. The outward-looking nature of the events of Pentecost are in this way reinforced by their association with the harvest festival of weeks within Judaism. We're back to Peter quoting from Joel. The spirit will be poured out on all flesh, not just on the gathered Jews in Jerusalem. This idea of using the image of first fruits and great harvest to symbolize the mission of Christianity is certainly not unique to Acts chapter two. You find it in several places in Paul's writing and also as we shall see in a few weeks in the book of Revelation where the believers are merely the first fruits of a much greater harvest that will follow. But there's yet another layer of meaning to be unearthed here. From the placing of these events at Pentecost, the Jewish Harvest Festival of Weeks. If you were to ask a Jewish person today what the Festival of Weeks, the Festival of Shavuot means to them, they'll tell you it means two things. Firstly, they'll tell you that it's a thanksgiving uh, for the gift of the harvest. And then secondly, they'll tell you that it's the thanksgiving for the gift of the law of Moses. If you just did what I did to find these images and Google Shavuot online and look at some of the images, you'll find they typically have wheat sheaves and the two tablets of the Ten Commandments. Now, the association of Pentecost with the giving of the law is actually not there in the Old Testament. It seems to have come about in the period we would call the intertestamental period. That's the few centuries between the end of the Old Testament you know, the, and the, the time of Jesus. So by the time Luke is writing the book of Acts in the kind of mid to late first century, the Jews would have known that the events taking place at Pentecost weren't just about the first fruits and the great harvest. They'd have known that they were also about the giving of the law. 
And once we know this, we can start to see elements of the way Luke tells his story that emphasize this parallel. The story of Moses going up the mountain to receive the law, which we heard in our first reading this morning, has thunder and lightning and a thick cloud and the blast of a trumpet and smoke and fire and an earthquake. And the events of Pentecost that Luke describes have a sound like the rushing of a violent wind, divided tongues of fire falling on people, the loud noise of people praying words that come directly from the Spirit of God. I think Luke is trying to draw our attention to the fact that the events of Pentecost find their significance not only in the festival marking the first fruits and the great harvest, but also in the symbolism of the giving of the law to Moses on Sinai. And the point is this. It is that whereas Moses had received the Jewish law from God on Mount Sinai, so the Jews gathered in Jerusalem at Pentecost, received a new law, a new covenant, given through the direct action of the Holy Spirit of God. When God gave the law to Moses on Sinai, it formed the basis of the covenant between God and the people of Israel. If you obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession out of all peoples. Indeed, the whole earth is mine, but you shall be for me a priestly kingdom and a holy nation. When God gave the Spirit to the believers at Pentecost, it inaugurated a new covenant between God and all the nations of the world. And so Peter quotes Joel. I will pour out my Spirit on all people. So these diaspora Jews from all over the known world have come to Jerusalem for the harvest festival of weeks, expecting to make an offering in the temple as a symbol of the fact that the whole offering belongs to God and to renew their commitment to the covenant established between God and Israel on Sinai. And what happened in the Pentecostal outpouring of the Spirit was not just a renewal, but a re-establishment of the basis of their faith. Because they themselves became the first fruits of the great harvest of the world. And the Torah law of Moses became the law of the Spirit of God, written not on tablets of stone, but on their hearts. The boundaries of their faith were blown wide open as the central markers of their religious observance were reinterpreted for them by Peter's sermon. They had to learn that God is not God of one people, but of all peoples. That the law is no longer ten commandments to be memorised and obeyed, but a spiritual ethic to be lived into being. And it's not just the law of Moses that finds its fulfilment at Pentecost. It's the covenant of God to Abraham that preceded it. Do you remember? God promised Abraham that through his offspring, all the nations of the world would be blessed. Peter picks this up in his sermon when he echoes the promise to Abraham and reinterprets it for the Pentecostal generation. Genesis. I will indeed bless you 
I will make your offspring as numerous as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And by your offspring shall all the nations of the earth gain blessing for themselves. And Peter in Acts says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, so that your sins may be forgiven, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you, for your children, and for all who are far away, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to him. This is a universalizing of the covenant of God with Israel. The call is clear. The coming of the Spirit on the disciples at Pentecost inaugurates and commissions them for public ministry to the whole world. They are to be those who will take to all the nations the good news that God is not just for one segment of humanity, but rather is for all of humanity. All flesh can receive the Spirit of God. Those who received the good news first, the people of Israel, the gathered disciples at Pentecost, those who, 3,000 who were baptised at Pentecost, those who got there first are merely the first fruits of a much greater harvest of all flesh. The covenant between God and humans is not restricted to those who obey the Ten Commandments of Moses or to those who are descended from Abraham. Rather, the covenant between God and humans, because of the outpouring of the Spirit at Pentecost, is now for all people in all places. And it seems to me that the great tragedy of Christian history is that for so much of the last 2,000 years, we have given vast amounts of effort and work in unpicking the events of Pentecost. We have spent huge amounts of time and theology trying to keep God to ourselves. Even our great missionary endeavours, all too often just dressed God up in cultural clothing of our own specification so that those who were converted in other lands were required not just to receive the teaching of the good news of Jesus, but also all the trappings of Western culture that go with it. All too often we have busied ourselves with the task of writing again the law of God on tablets of stone rather than in our hearts, defining which behaviour is acceptable and which is not so that we can know who is out and who is in. Think of the arguments of Arminianism versus Calvinism, Catholicism versus Protestantism. Can women be ministers or can't they? Is it okay to be a Christian or a leader in a church or married if you're part of the LGBT community? We have torn ourselves and are tearing ourselves apart over issues which are, dare I say it, to the spirit of God. A done deal. Peter had it. The spirit of God is poured out on all flesh. We have exchanged the ethic of the Spirit 
for laws set in stone. And in so doing, we have missed the fact that God has long gone on ahead of us out there into the world beyond us, drawing all kinds of people to himself, pouring out his spirit again and again on all flesh. And we need a new Pentecost. We need a sudden dramatic realisation in our time that the spirit of Christ is already present in the world, working beyond us, drawing all things and all people to God. So this Pentecost, I pray a blessing on all of us. May the fire of the Holy Spirit grant us the spiritual gift of understanding those who are not like us. May the voice of the Spirit speak to us of the great harvest that is to come, of which we are merely the first fruits. May the breath of the Spirit speak into our hearts the law of love, releasing us from laws of stone that we have chiselled into our hearts. We bring our prayers for the church and for the needs of all humanity, from countries and continents, from islands and oceans, we join with voices lifted this day to worship you, O God, the creator of life. Through mountains and valleys, through deserts and plains, your people around the world praise you, O God, the saviour of the world. With the tongues of all nations, we join our voices to thank you, O God, the comforter of bodies and souls. And we come before you bearing our burdens and hopes. Today we ask you, O God, hear our prayer and grant us your love. We pray for those who live with injustice. Encourage us to lift up their voices and strengthen their hope. We pray for those who continue to perpetuate injustice. We pray for systems that keep people ground down for legal arguments that prevent refugees from finding new homes. May your kindness and your spirit transform hearts and systems into agents of freedom and justice. We pray for every institution and every person who stands for justice. Let us act justly according to your words. Today we ask you, O God, hear our prayer and grant us your justice. We pray for the visible unity of the church. We pray for churches together in Westminster, gathering this evening to celebrate Pentecost together. We pray for our Baptist Union, for unity in the midst of theological discussions and division over issues that should not divide us. 
we celebrate the rich diversity of your people. We thank you for sisters and brothers in Islam and Judaism. We pray for the interfaith event coming up here at Bloomsbury. And we thank you that unity and peace can exist between people of different faiths as together, according to the light given to us, we seek after you. May we be compelled to fulfill Jesus' prayer that we may be one and work together to live your kingdom into being. Together, today, we ask you, O oh God, hear our prayer and grant us a passion for unity. We thank you for the many colours, cultures and customs of our world. In all our differences, unite us by your love. May your universal church be given a vision and a gift for universal peace. May Christians stop killing Christians. Enable us to act together to uphold life and to make this world a just and peaceful household for all humanity. Today we ask you, O oh God, hear our prayer and grant us your peace. Amen. <laughs>